Good morning. Our uh, passage, our sermon passage this morning comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 24, and we will be reading verses 1 through 7. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. All right, so when someone offends you or hurts you or does you wrong, it's natural to want to get even, right? We want to get back. We're going to get back at them. We're going to get even. We're going to get our pound of flesh. Every action movie you've ever watched over the past 20 years, that's the plot. That's the theme. That's the, that's the whole setting, right? Somebody has been wronged, and now I'm getting vengeance, and I'm going to get even, I'm going to get a pound of flesh, and so forth. And yet... The Bible is clear on the subject that vengeance does not belong to us. Vengeance does not belong to us, and we have no right or authority to, to, to wish evil on those who hurt us or, or hope for their demise or, or, or anything like that. We're, we are, are, are to entrust that to God. Now, this text today is an example to us, as we just read a little of. We see David, who, by the way, we, we've watched over the past months, this man has been faithful to Saul, his king. He has faithfully served him and risked his life over and over to bring victorious military, uh, or to bring victories in, in military uh, fights and so forth. And yet Saul wrongly accuses David of being some enemy. He, he, he's, he's out to kill him. He hates him, and he's been chasing him now all around the countryside, over and over, attempts to kill David. For no reason. And even last chapter, what we saw, we, we, we see the king is, is closing in on David on the mountains, right? And his, his, David's literally coming down this side of the mountain, literally falling down the mountain. And Saul and his men are peeking the top of the mountain and about to capture David when a messenger comes and says, Saul, the Philistines are attacking your homeland. And he has to leave and turn and go defend his own land. Wow. But now in verse 1 of chapter 24, we see that Saul has a one-track mind. And, and, and look at verse 1. It seems like it says, it says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Right away, he's back at the business of going after David. I mean, you wonder, I mean, the, the, the writer didn't even tell us what happened with the Philistines. What happened? No, it just comes right back. Saul's attention is right back on David immediately. And his intelligence officers greet him with the news and the information. We know where he's at. He's, he's in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then 
Verse 2, we see that Saul wastes no time in drafting an elite force of seals, <laughs> a secret group of, of uh, military men out of all of Israel. He picks 3,000 of the best. Look what it says. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat rocks. The old wild goat rocks. Literally, it's mountain goat. That's all it means, the mountain goat rocks. And that land is even today uh, well known for the, the plentiful amount of, of mountain goats because the, who else can live there, right? The jagged rocks and the steep slopes and the mountain goats thrive. And, and this particular place was known as mountain goat rocks. And yet notice what happens in verse 3. And again, what we see throughout this whole thing, when we read the Bible, what we've seen throughout 1 Samuel, but what you see throughout the Bible is you see the providence of God. You see God's plan unfolding behind the scenes. And, and things are happening and, and putting it like chess pieces in place just where God wants them. And that's what we see here. Verse 3, and he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. He took a potty break. That's what he's doing here. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. So it's beautiful. What a chance. What an accident. What a coincidence. <laughs> so, and by the way, these caves are huge. This, these caves that are in this area, there's some of those caves that can hold well uh, around 1,000 people in, in these giant openings. And so David's men have taken a break in a cool cave. I mean, cool, it's cool, but it's also cold. And uh, they're resting in there. Saul and his men are walking around. There's a beautiful land. There's pastures, as we see. There's a lot of uh, places where the sheep, shepherds bring their sheep. So the sheep folds around. And then Saul, as his men have settled in, he gets away a little bit to find a nice private spot to cover his feet. That's the literal Hebrew there, which is a custom of the, it's just basically saying that as your, your robe will be all around your feet as you're sitting there. So uh, cover your feet. And, that, and that's what he's doing. He's relieving himself. Now, what happens is um, <laughs> David and his men, they're, they're there. I mean, you... It's dark in a cave. The, the further back, I'm sure Saul didn't want to just be right at the mouth of the cave, so he went back in there a bit for some privacy. But he doesn't see all of David's 600-plus men and David in that cave. And look at verse 4. What do David's men react to? How do they see this? And the men of David said to him, Here is the day. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it, seems, as it shall seem good to you. <laughs> so I love that. They literally begin to sing, This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. That's what they're singing. This is it. Make no mistake. This is the day that God has given you the victory, and justice is done. That's what they're saying. What does David do? It says, and it says, David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Wow. And that can happen, obviously. So what has happened here? I think what's happened is Saul, you know, 
you're in a restroom, you go in the restroom, right, and you have a suit coat on, you take it off, you hang it up, and then you go to the bed. That's kind of what Saul did. He took his robe off, I think, and placed it a little bit away there, and then he went and is relieving himself, and David just slinks around. Again, it's dark. He's slinky, stealthy, comes around, gets that robe, cuts off the corner. Some say that by cutting off a piece of Saul's robe, that David was symbolically invalidating Saul's right to the throne. The, the, a royal robe is very meticulous, and, and it could be disqualified by any type of dirt on it or anything messing at the hinge, uh, the fringes. The Bible talks about that even with the, uh, the robes of the priest. They had to be just right. And so for David to disassemble or, or somehow, uh, you know, mess up this robe like that was was definitely if nothing else if it wasn't a symbol of him saying your kingship is over and you've been cut off from the throne symbolically it was definitely a way that david could say look saul i could just as easily have ended your kingship by cutting off your head so it's at least that and we're going to see that as we move ahead here verse five and six there's a little bit of a strange response now to what's happening with, from David. David, I mean, in the, in the moment, I'm sure he was overtaken by the emotion. His men were just reveling in this very quietly. Yes, David, this is it. This is it. Take off his head. God's placed your enemy in your hands. And David's emotional. He's excited. So he, he does. He goes toward the king. He cuts off that robe. But even that, look what verse 5. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David's convicted right away, convicted that he had touched the Lord's anointed in, in some way, that he had this defamed the king this king who's a madman, this king who's trying to kill him for no reason. And yet David still has this respect for the office of king and the authority that God had, had set up. And what we get from this, David used those words, the Lord's anointed, and I should not have touched or put forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now that brings up a principle that we do see in the Bible. We, we do see two places in the scriptures where that is spoken. Those words, 1 Chronicles 16, 22, and Psalm 105, verse 15. And they're identical. They both say the same thing. It says, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. So there was this warning from God to say, do not touch those who I've anointed, do not touch those I've put in, in office, my prophets or my kings, patriarchs. Now this principle, by the way, has been wrongly applied today. I think in context, this principle back to the, to the people of Israel, the promise to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that through their seed would come the promised Messiah. God sovereignly protected his prophets. He protected those patriarchs. Nothing would happen to them. But I think today this principle has been wrongly applied to preachers and evangelists, especially, especially televangelists, who say, you can't speak against us. You can't touch us with your words. You, 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 you can't question what we're doing. Touch not the Lord's anointed. I mean, you've seen over and over some of these guys that are just doing some questionable things. 
preaching heresies, and then doing crazy things like buying $34 million jets, or that's their third multi-million dollar jet. But the Lord, oh, I got to have it. Well, no, that, I think that's a little extravagant. Touch not the Lord's anointed. Do, do not question us. You can't question us because the Bible says, touch not the Lord's anointed. So you see where the abuse can come in of this, this, this principle. So we got to look at context. Was David saying that? Was he okay, I can't touch anybody. I can't, uh, if somebody's, you know, wrong, we, we can't speak out against them. But that wasn't the context. They've taken it all out. Literally in the context, David is saying he will not kill Saul. <laughs> it did not say that he would not criticize or question his judgment. He will not kill him or put his hand out against him to, to harm him. So I think personally, again, it's never our place to take physical vengeance on someone by killing them, obviously. Now, I know this has come up in history. I mean, this is something that we can agree to disagree on. Bonhoeffer and others throughout history have kind of joined coups to actually kill Adolf Hitler in that case. Was it right or wrong for a Christian to be a part of something that actually would execute, murder another human being in the name of righteousness? Now, again, this is for all of us to decide, but I'm saying as we look at this principle, David would say, no, why? Why would he say that it's not our place to kill enemies in the name of righteousness? And here it is again. Let me, let me just, don't forget this. Though, though we are to respect those in authority, we're never to turn a complete blind eye to false teaching or sinful practices in their lives. So don't get me wrong on this. I'm not, I do not agree at all with this idea that preachers say, oh, I'm above your criticisms because I am God's anointed. I'm the one called to be the pastor of this church and you can't speak against me whatsoever. That is simply pride and arrogant hogwash. It's wrong. Matter of fact, let me just say why we have the opportunity here at this moment that a pastor, the only authority that a pastor has over anyone's life in, in, their, in their congregation is when he is preaching the word of God and saying, thus saith the Lord. A, a, you hear stories of churches where pastors are so controlling of people, telling them what to wear, where to go, whether or not they can have a television in their house, what, 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 I mean, just on and on and on, how they got to wear their hair. That is sin. That is wrong. That's out of bounds. That's, that's not it. The, 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 the pastor, as a human being, I am a member of this church just like you are, and we're all under the authority of Christ and under the authority of his word. And a pastor's job is to be like John the Baptist and point, behold, point to Christ and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, follow me as I follow him, but the minute I don't follow him, criticize me and call me out. That's, that's, that's what it says. Yeah, is there respect? Yes, obviously we respect the office that God has ordained in a church. Yes, he, these are God's offices as, as far as elder and deacons in a local church. So yes, there's respect. And don't take our heads, kill us. That's the, that's the point here, right? When we're wrong. But approach us in love with the scriptures because we're all under the authority of the word of God. Having said that, let me move on and show you how this principle applies with David. Verse 7. You see, David was convinced of this principle still, right? About I'm not going to take the, the life of Saul. It's not my place to take the life of Saul. I, I will respect his, that, that God has put him in that place. God will take him out of that place. That's what, that's what David's saying. But he's got to persuade his men. And there's, he, he, he has to be pretty forceful. So verse 7 is, is really poorly translated. So David persuaded, persuaded sounds so sweet, 
let me persuade you fellas not to do this. That word in the Hebrew literally is the word for tore apart. David tore apart his men with these words. He spoke strong words to diffuse the anger of his men who wanted to take off the head of Saul. Strongly forbidding them. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his merry way. And I know our flesh says, man, we had him right there. That dirty dog. Now he's going about his merry way back to his men. But notice this principle in verse 8 through 11 I just said. This doesn't mean that David doesn't confront Saul and point out his error. And very bravely, it takes just uh, as much bravery here because what, what, what David does now is not militarily savvy. In verse 8, it says, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, giving away his position and the position of all of his men. But what did he say? My Lord! the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Wow. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against, the, uh, against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. So David was... Brutally honest with Saul. He was confronting Saul, saying, you're wrong, Saul. You've got bad information. You're angry for no reason. I could have killed you just now, and yet I showed honor and grace to you. This look familiar? Whoa, good night. That's my robe. Man. And really... David gives the principle in verse 12 through 15 why he would do that. And this is the idea that vengeance does not belong to us, but vengeance belongs to the Lord. This is one of the hardest things for human beings to grasp. It's the hardest thing in forgiveness. When, when, when you've been wronged, when you've been betrayed, when you've been hurt, it's very hard not to wish evil upon the person who hurt you. And yet, here's the principle. Here's the Bible. It doesn't matter what we think or feel or what people tell us, like David's men told him, hey, get him back. He deserves it, man. Get him. That doesn't matter. What matters is what God says. And so this principle, David says in verse 12, he says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. 
After whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you chasing, Saul? Who are you after? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? Who am I, Saul? You've got the kingdom. You've got the whole military at your disposal. I'm just one man. Do you not see that you're obsessive and kind of out of your mind right now? But he goes on to say, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. May the Lord do that, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do evil against you. I'm going to entrust you to the hands of God. So again, that is the hardest thing to do. When someone has wronged you, instead of wishing evil upon them, we turn them over to God. That's what David did. He's living out Romans 12, verses 17 through 19. Look what, look what Paul says there. Obviously, learning it from David and Christ. Repay no, e- repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there's, there's the principle that David lived by. He knew this. Vengeance is God, it's not, it's not mine. God is sovereign, he knows what's best. I'm going to entrust my enemies to God. That verse goes on to say, by the way, in Romans, and he says, instead he says, do good to your enemy. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them drink. It's, it's radical. <laughs> it's radical. Did you know that Christianity is radical, by the way? Did you know that when you follow Christ, it's a radical difference than what you were following before? Obviously, and this is, this is proof of it. Now look at this. It, it, again, what an amazing display of restraint and grace in the life of David and obedience. Because this is a picture of David obeying a sovereign God, not doing what he wants, not doing what he feels, not doing what seems reasonably right to all of us in this room, but he obeys God and gives honor to God by saying, Lord, you are the one who will, will judge between us and, you, and justice will be done by you. Now look what Saul does here. Now this is heavy, right? This is a heavy testimony. And Saul, he sees it. Look at verse 16 through 19. He, he, he sees it for a little bit anyway. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? Now, something's happened, by the way. It's very interesting when you look at Saul as he is like overcome by evil spirits and then the spirit departs and you can see these changes in Saul, right? He's very up and down, a little moody, we might say. All of his servants knew that. And again, they still gave him spears. I don't understand. But, <laughs> but... This, 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 this beautiful thing happens here. Remember what the whole last chapter and maybe the one before that, Saul would never say David's name. He said, son of Jesse, son of Jesse, that son of Jesse. But now what did he do? I believe for a moment here, Saul has genuinely been given his right mind for a moment. And he says, is this your voice, my son, David? My son David. I do think there was genuinely at times a love that Saul had for, for David. 
And here, everything's wiped away for a moment. His sin is revealed to himself. He sees David and he says, my son David. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well, well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hand. Saul admits that the sovereignty of God had delivered him into the hand of, of David. He says, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Obviously, no is the idea there that Saul's saying. Nobody lets their enemies go. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And then Saul asked David to make a covenant with him, which David already made with his son Jonathan, but it's redone here because David is a man of integrity and truth. Verse 20, and now behold, Saul says, now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the strongholds of En Gedi. Wow, there's a lot here. Saul affirms that David will be king. That's a confirmation. God's already prophesied this. God's already said this. David knows this. He, he's, he's already been the, uh, anointed as the king. And, and now Saul admits it. And then he asks for protection because what happens when one regime takes over another regime or, or takes the place? They normally kill everybody in the family of the old regime because they're afraid somebody's going to you know, spring up and try to take power. And so Saul says, wait a minute now, you're going to be king, but let's make a deal. Protect me and my family. And of course, we know that David has already done this with Jonathan, he, and Jonathan is the son of Saul. David's already promised, I will not wipe out your, your family. We already know that. But he does again. He says, yes, yes, king, I covet a covenant with you. And then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. David was merciful, but David was not stupid. Right? He was merciful and he was gracious here, but he wasn't stupid. And his men go right back to the strategic hiding places and on guard. Because they've seen too many times before Saul's crocodile tears and his moodiness. <laughs> but doesn't it bring comfort to know that God will get vengeance. Does that not bring comfort to you to know that God will get vengeance and that God will get justice one day? That those who are evil, that those who are wicked, that those who hurt others and do injustices will be brought to justice. Isn't, isn't, isn't that a, a comfort? And it is comforting to know that God's vengeance will fall out upon wickedness. It is comforting to know that God's vengeance will fall out upon evildoers until we realize and remember that we are part of that group 
that we are part of the evildoers, that we're not holy, that we're not righteous, that we sin daily. You see, God is holy. And this is the final application for us today. This is where I want us to to get back to. God is holy. We don't understand it. We can't comprehend it. We've never seen it because all we do is compare ourselves to each other. We don't understand what holiness is. But we have all sinned. And sin is anything other than perfection. Our greatest sin, folks, before a holy God is not being perfect. That's it. None of us can be perfect. None of us are perfect. That's holy. And anything that's not holy cannot stand in the presence of holiness. So God's wrath must come down in vengeance against all that is unholy. That's what the Bible reveals to us. That's who this God is. He's holy. And his vengeance and his wrath is the natural result of his holiness. And that's why Isaiah 34, 8 has this most chilling statement. It says, for the Lord has a day of vengeance. That speaks to the fact that there is a day appointed by the Lord where he will bring vengeance. Romans 1, 18 tells us, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is all of us. We all do this. We all lie to ourselves. We all justify our sin. We suppress the truth of God in various ways in our lives to do what we want to do, to do what makes us feel good. Therefore, all of us are under this wrath. We deserve the retribution, the wrath of a holy God. Look at at Romans 2, 3, and 5. Paul goes on to say this, saying that all of us are unrighteous, and God's wrath will be poured out against all unrighteousness. Then he says, do you suppose... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Not some apathetic, cheap grace gospel. It says, oh, yeah, God is love. God is love. It's all good. He'll always forgive you. No, no, no. His, his mercy, if there is any mercy, and he does show us all great mercy. We're here breathing, aren't we? And that mercy is meant to lead us to repent before him, to turn from our sin, to hate our wickedness, to long for his righteousness. Then he goes on here. And says, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's the second time now in Scripture we've seen that there's a day of wrath, that there is a day of vengeance that God has appointed. So 
So there's a day of wrath. It's future tense at this point, right? That's what we're seeing. It's coming. But I want to talk about another day of wrath. Say another day of wrath. Yes. Another day of wrath that we will celebrate in five days. It's called Good Friday. The day that Christ suffered the wrath and vengeance of God for his people. Romans 5.8. I mean, this is the glorious gospel. This is it. God is holy. We are not. His vengeance is coming for us. And yet, verse Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the good news of the gospel. It's the only hope we have. Not our good works and deeds and church attendance and all that stuff. None of that. The only hope we have is the righteous one, Jesus Christ himself, who lived the perfect life for us, went to that cross, and on that cross, God's vengeance that is coming for all sinners. But the vengeance that I deserve was placed upon Christ. My sin was placed on Christ. The very sin that God would judge in me was placed on Christ. That's when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, God was pouring out my vengeance that I deserve and the wrath I deserve on Christ. We don't understand. We can't comprehend the agony. We will never understand that, how Christ was suffering eternally, infinitely. What I should be suffering for eternity. So we have two choices of wrath days, folks. There's a day of wrath coming for all those who do not repent and trust Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's done. There's no getting out of it. John 3.36 says, He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, the wrath of God for those who are not repenting and resting in Jesus Christ the wrath of God is hanging over you like a, a very thin balloon ready to pop at any moment. That's kind of the picture, folks. We're under the wrath of God. We don't have to do anything marvelous or extravagant to be under the wrath of God. We're all born sinners under the wrath of God. That's the default. But by grace, Christ took our wrath on his day of wrath on Calvary. And that's why Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. And that's my plea, that by faith, you will rest in the perfection of Jesus Christ. That's your shelter. That's it. That's all we've got. Daily, all of us run to the cross. Every day, we rest in the cross and acknowledge, this is my hope. This is all my hope and stay. This is it. There's nothing else. And if we do that, then Romans 5.1 applies to us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing like that, folks. There's nothing like that in the world. May you rest in Christ and have peace with God. Let's, let's pray. Our, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we see your holiness throughout the scriptures. 
a holiness that first and foremost drives us into a place of fear and trembling. Let the whole earth tremble before the Lord, for he is holy, the psalmist says. But yet, your law moves us to a place of utter hopelessness that leads us to the only hope we have. There is one who was righteous. There was one who was holy. And he lived that life in our place. That if we may rest in him, we will become his righteousness. He took your vengeance that was reserved for us in his own body. And if we rest in him, our debt is paid. So Father, by your grace, let us continue to rest in Jesus daily. Conform us to his image. Change us by your gospel that we may begin to live the way we see believers live throughout your word, that we do radical things. We love our enemies. We forgive. And we allow you the vengeance. We trust it into your hands. Father, may you be glorified in all that's done and said throughout the remainder of this service. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.